I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the third series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore secularism, the common good, the trans debate, how to talk about God, what animals teach us about ourselves, how pandemics shape history, and the nature of reality itself. 25 years ago, the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales published a substantial report entitled The Common Good and the Catholic Church's Social Teaching. Over subsequent elections, they followed it up with titles like Vote for the Common Good, The European Common Good, Choosing the Common Good. When he delivered his wreath lectures, Professor Michael Sandel entitled his last talk The Politics of the Common Good. The Green Party entitled its 2015 election manifesto for the Common Good. The common good is a popular phrase, and yet it's not always 100% clear that people are using it to mean the same thing. To take one example, the Green Party is unequivocally pro-abortion, and its 2015 manifesto argued for phasing out of public funding for schools run by religious organisations. These are not positions, I humbly suggest, that you are likely to find in a document from the Catholic Bishops' Conference. So what does the common good actually mean? Can it be co-opted for almost any political ends? Is it just a hooray phrase, warm and appealing because it sounds nice and you can fill it with more or less anything you want to? Or does it have something tougher, more substantial, more challenging to offer us? Anna Rowland is St Helda Associate Professor of Catholic Social Thought and Practice at Durham University and is one of the most respected Catholic thinkers of her generation. Her latest book, Towards a Politics of Communion, Catholic Social Teaching in Dark Times, looks at the common good and human dignity, solidarity, subsidiarity, and indeed the whole landscape of Catholic social thoughts. Anna, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. Before we begin to look at what the phrase common good means and where it comes from, it's worth reflecting on how popular it is today and asking why. Well, I think it's interesting. I think it's almost an idea that we've tried really hard to suppress. And I think we tried hard to suppress it as good liberals for understandable reasons. And, you know, perhaps we'll come to some of those later. But amongst them, I think, is the idea that if you kind of acknowledge a common good, it might require you to kind of sacrifice something of your own good so that, in fact, the common good becomes a kind of a bad for you as an individual. So I think some of those fears around the idea that it might require you to sacrifice something and that that might not be something that fits with liberal modern ideas of freedom and self-determination means we kind of suppressed it. But as Michael Sandel points out, the problem is I think it's an idea you can't suppress because there is no space of neutrality. And so what happens is every time you suppress it, it pops back up again in popular discourse. And one of the things that I find fascinating about it is the fact that it pops up on the left, on the right, it pops up in really unlikely places. And I think it pops up everywhere where we're trying to resist individualism. One of the fascinating things is that Podemos, left-wing Spanish party, talks about the common good. And Victor Orban, a kind of nationalist populist, talks about the common good. So not only does it pop up a lot, but it pops up in the most opposed parts of the political spectrum. 
Exactly. And that kind of proves my thesis. However, I think one of the things to be really clear about is when it's popping up with movements like Podemos, which might be considered a kind of open populist movement of the left, and then the kind of slightly more closed populism in forms of ethno-nationalism, it's performing different types of work. I think the Podemos example is interesting because they're using it as almost the idea of a horizon setting idea. They appeal to the idea of the common good as a horizon beyond us and that we need the idea of a collective identity. They get the idea that the common good involves some kind of negotiation of something collective in politics. So politics isn't just securing something for yourself. It's the idea that politics is about setting a communal identity and that identity is fixed on the idea of a justice that is currently absent and we want to strive towards. In Orban's case, it's really quite different. He thinks there is an absolutely substantive normative set of ideas at the root of the common good. And in fact, his appeal is to Christianity as the only only possible basis for a politics of the common good. There's nothing to be negotiated for him in a way. There's simply the enacting of that vision, the securing of it, the locking down of it. And so those are two very different movements. One that's about opening up towards a horizon that is as yet unknown. And on the right, there is this space which is about saying, no, what we need to do is lock down certain things that we know. Let's trace a little bit of the intellectual genealogy. We're going to have to do this very briefly because we could spend hours just talking about this alone. The phrase is very commonly associated with Catholic thought, but it's very important to emphasise it. It predates Christianity in one sense, and you can find it in classical political thought, particularly Aristotle and Cicero, can't you? Tell us just briefly what the common good was, what form it took before Christianity even got on the scene. Yeah, I think this is really important. Aristotle and Cicero don't agree absolutely about what they think the common good is, but both of them use it as an idea to talk about what is both really important about the individual human being and the goods that they need in their lives to flourish and something that also is about the universal, the community as a whole. And so Aristotle basically believes that there is a good which is truly the good of the person but which is at the same time only secured by collective action, by negotiating a common life together. And in fact he thinks this is the highest kind of good. So it's higher than an individual good or what we might now think of just as a public good. There is something which is the good of the flourishing of the whole, which is also the good of the individual person. Now, Aristotle starts with the particular. He starts off by saying, you have to think about what's local, what's what's nearest to you. And you build up from that smaller scale to a scale that still makes sense. Cicero starts the other way around and he thinks about the universal. He thinks about what's generally true of all people and then wants to incarnate that. I mean, that's the wrong word in a sense, but he wants to incarnate that in place. And he talks about kindness, goodness, justice and generosity as key features of the life that secures the common good for a community. So they start at different ends, one at the top and one at the bottom, but they basically arrive at a similar place. The good of the person and the good of the community. And there isn't a fundamental tension between the two. Mm. These political ideas are picked up by some of the church fathers, perhaps most notably Augustine, and they're reshaped within the Christian worldview. What's the main Christian contribution to these ideas of the common good in that early period, before we get to the medieval period, in the time of the Church Fathers? How do they change it? Well, the first and most significant change is that the common good is God. 
So God in God's self is goodness and therefore everything relates back to a perfect form of goodness of which we have an imperfect version now. So in an interesting way, that kind of takes the pressure off us because Aristotle's putting quite a lot of pressure on us. We've got to achieve this perfect life. It's the highest goal uh, of life is to be political, be politically active and secure this good. So for Christians, in a sense, God is the perfect version of that. And we struggle towards some version of that in our life together now. But we do that as fallen, failing human beings. And so we're in this mixed up space suddenly of Christianity, which is both talking about sin and imperfection. So they're introducing a new storyline, basically, a new narrative about what it means to be human that holds the common good story together, that gives it substance. But what's interesting is the early church appeals actually to quite concrete ideas about the common good. So they use this language, but they turn to texts like Matthew 25. So they say, if you want to know what the common good looks like from a Christian point of view, this is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, release to captives, you know, we know the list. It absolutely visceral and embodied and immediate. And it's a demand on you. It's not something somebody else does for you as a representative in a liberal sense. It's a kind of command to live in a particular way, live in your own body in relation to the bodiliness of others. What is characteristic about Aquinas's understanding of the common good? What's he adding to this conversation? So he does add something really important, but he doesn't complete the idea. So we don't have from Aquinas a completely systematic idea of the common good that we can just sort of go back and retrieve now. But certainly he develops it. And I think what's interesting is he's in this moment in the medieval period where there's a huge amount of institution building going on. Augustine was writing in the context of a complete collapse of institutional life at the end of the Roman Empire. And Aquinas is writing in the context of the kind of bedding down and the building of early bureaucracy complex structures of law. So he becomes fascinated with the political dimensions of the common good. So what Aquinas does is he majors on the political dimensions and he fuses common good thinking with a Christian version of virtue thinking. So for him, the common good is the life of virtue and he has a huge amount to say in particular about the virtue of justice. So we get this much more complex fleshing out of ideas of what he calls distributive justice, so stuff that we distribute and we need access to in order to survive the basic material goods of life, but also interestingly, commutative justice. And commutative justice is sort of interpersonal justice between us. It's fair agreement. It's a fair balance. We don't just distribute food and housing and wealth. We also distribute things like honour and trust and worth and so forth. And I think that's where there's almost a challenge to the politics of the left and the right to be thinking about both of those dimensions of the justice question from a Christian point of view, the kind of being questions as well as the stuff questions. Now, the modern tradition of Catholic social teaching tends to be dated to 1891. Tell us what happens in 1891 and how the common good is reformed in the early years of Catholic social teaching. So Leo XIII comes along and he's decided that there's something going badly wrong in the way that the church is relating to the politics of its moment. So we need to remember that the papacy were major property owners in 
France, in Spain and elsewhere. And all of that had broken down in a very fractious way. And so suddenly there's this massive loss of church power. So one of the ironies is that Catholic social teaching is born out of the church, basically losing most of its form of power that it had accrued. And Leo thinks, okay, where do we have resources in our past to help us work out how we might be a constructive presence in the world at this point? Because we need a big rethink. So he goes back to Aquinas and he retrieves Aquinas's ideas about virtue, his ideas about the common good, and he basically applies that to the modern world. And so the encyclical tradition is an attempt of the papacy to keep launching into the public space this question about okay, so what's the purpose of our social life? What's the purpose of our market economy? What's the purpose of our of our politics? And in the current context of something like COP26, the question is we want a sustainable future, but what are we sustaining it for? Just jump in there. There's another really important context, which is that of wider politics in the 19th century, which is dominated by British liberalism on the one hand and an emergent communism on the other. The former placing minimal restrictions on the individual, the latter suggesting the state is omnicompetent, we need to nationalise anything that could be common. And Catholic social teaching, as it were, threads the needle between those positions, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But without being a third way, and I think this is one of the really important things to understand, it's not an attempt to find a third way philosophy somewhere between liberalism in its economic and political forms and communism, on the other hand. It's not an attempt just to squeeze in the space that, that might be left. It's an attempt to ask the question of each of those stories of what it means to be human. How adequate is your storyline? When we follow your storyline through of being the radical individual or being the communist good comrade, what kind of story of being human emerges and who benefits and who loses? And how does this enable us to reach human flourishing? So it's a bit like putting each of those through a viva. It's putting each of them through a test and seeing how they perform morally against the version of being human that we see in the scriptures. So it refuses to either completely condemn or to baptise any of those worldviews. What it does is it says you are a worldview, and in a way you're a pseudo-religion, by the way, because you're telling us what it means to be human, and each of you is giving us a, a narrative of salvation. Communism has its version of the story of salvation. Liberalism has its version of the story of salvation. So it treats each of those isms of the 20th century, including fascism, it treats them as rival theologies in a sense and sees it as on the territory of the church in giving a narrative about the purpose of human life. So it has a whole load of very pragmatic things to say and concrete analysis. But the big thing is the storyline thing. The classic definition of the common good in Catholic social thought comes from Gaudium et Spes, a, a document from the Vatican II Council, and it is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfilment more fully and more easily. I have read that definition more times than I can possibly count. I've tried to memorise it. I can't. I find it incredibly slippery. Am I alone in that? I do find it really a bit opaque. Well, it's not just opaque, it kind of sends you to sleep before you've got to the end of the sentence. It's one of those lines that's crafted for a document and it, it's trying to do about 50 things in a sentence and each of them actually is quite important, but the problem is it doesn't really scan as a sentence. So I think it's worth paying attention just to a couple of things that that statement is trying to do, given all its limitations. The first is this emphasis on the sum total of the conditions. So in other words, there's a plurality of conditions that are necessary for us 
ourselves to reach our flourishing as human beings. There's a whole set of conditions. And actually, those conditions might shift according to time and cultural context. Some of them may be fixed. But actually, there's a whole set, like a complex ecology of the way that we live that's necessary to achieve human flourishing. So we can't legislate in a way that perhaps, I'm sorry to pick him out, but, you know, Victor Orban or that kind of version of there's a common good we know the conditions, we lock down the conditions, and we protect them. This definition is actually much more open-ended and challenging to that version of common good populism, because precisely there's an open-endedness, there's a conversation to be had about what those conditions are. Well, to be specific, then, give me an example of what a condition is. Are we talking about sort of a rule of law here? Would that qualify? Yeah, so there are some things that the tradition goes on to explain which are just absolutely concrete. So things like the rule of law. So you've got to have a society where there is justice available, where order and security are preserved. Equally, everybody must have access, fair access to the goods of the world, the goods of the earth, created by God, intended for distribution to all. So there must be access in a just fashion to the basic goods of land, of decent work, of possibilities for securing stable relationships and nurturing those, for having families and being able to nurture and protect them. So there's a whole set of basic conditions which absolutely can be laid out in there. They're almost just like a kind of Catholic natural law version of what makes human beings able to flourish. And the belief of the church is that basically most of those we could have some form of common agreement on. If you don't have secure housing and you don't have secure work, it's just evident that you're not really able to participate. So that's one element of it. But I think the other bit of the conditions, and this is where liberal theory tends to fall down and CST, I think, has got something to say on this. And it is in that the stuff that we need, but there's also a whole world of freedom for the human being, of growth, the being stuff, which is actually what gives us greatest value in life. We need the basic goods in order to be able to live that life, but it's the life in excess of supply and demand. It's the space of human interaction, gift exchange, the deep ways of relating that we know give us most human flourishing, give us most pleasure, give us most sense of a life that's got worth and value to it. And that's where we touch transcendence. And what that definition is forcing us to do is to have this conversation, is to then say, okay, well, what are those conditions? So I don't think it's necessarily a weakness that the definition in itself doesn't spell that out, because it forces us into that risky process in history where it's your and my responsibility to work that out. There's one other element within that definition I think it's really worth highlighting. The phrase in the middle, which allow people either as groups or as individuals. Now, I think that's critical, really, isn't it? Because, again, the political traditions against which or in the context of which this teaching emerges either sees us as individuals or simply part of a homogeneous group. Yeah. And there's a very clear emphasis in that in that definition is that it, neither of those exhausts who we are as people. No, that's absolutely right. And what's interesting is the Gaudium et Spes definition, this is a really nerdy point, the Gaudium et Spes definition is a reworking of one from a couple of years earlier in Marta et Magistra, and that didn't have the reference to groups. So it was the flourishing of persons. And what Gaudium et Spes does is it, it introduces, the only change it makes to that original definition from a couple of years earlier is to add basically individuals and groups. And this was to say, actually, it is necessary to say there is an integrity to the group itself and that we're not just individuals and that societies only flourish 
insofar as we are also able to form identities as groups and the good of those groups is preserved. Now, of course, one of those groups is the church, but it's also referring to a wider set of voluntary associations. The previous documents that have been drawing on insisted that trade unions and workers associations are necessary to secure the good of workers, for example. So there's all sorts of contexts in which we are too frail and vulnerable simply as individuals to stand in the world and secure goods. And the existence of virtuous social groups that have a real goal and purpose to them is a vital part of how we secure the common good. And when you erode the conditions for those groups, as much as those individuals to exist, you erode the possibility for a decent society. Let's look at some of the challenges, some of the criticisms of the common good. You mention a number of these in your book. One of them is that it ignores value pluralism. Another is, I suppose it's a parallel criticism really, it's falsely unitive. It assumes there is commonality when actually speaking there's just difference and not just superficial difference but difference that goes all the way down and that if we ever try to engineer, let alone impose the common good, we would be denying people the opportunity to live their lives the way they choose to. It's a bit artificial, in other words. Is that a fair criticism? Yes and no. I think one of the things I found helpful when I was researching the book is a theorist called Jane Mansfield introduces a definition of three different types of common good theories. Each of them has strengths and weakness. Now, the first one, she says, basically is aggregative common good theories, i.e. common good theories which predominate in, in liberalism, which say the good of society is to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number. And so sometimes we might have to sacrifice the goods of some people, but the best we can hope for is the greatest good of the greatest number. And that tends to then end up with quite a strong focus on proceduralism, which is the second predominant common good theory that she talks about. So what we do is we turn the world into a sort of John Rawls experiment where we sit in a room and we try and aggregate our goods together to work out some kind of overlapping consensus of goods. Now, the weakness of that and where there would be fair criticism to be made is all you have there is my power brokered against your power. My opinion brokered against your opinion. There's nothing else. And it's pretty depressing because unless you can equalise the conditions of power that we have that conversation in, we're always going to live in a really unequal world in which those who have power have most say, etc. The third kind of common good theory that she says predominates in modernity is what she calls unitive common good theories. Now, what's interesting about where we started the interview is that both Podemos, with their left-wing justice on the horizon version, and Orban with his family values, a certain kind of right-wing welfare-orientated common good theory, they are both unitive common good theories. So you can get unitive common good theories on the left and on the right. But there has been a really dark history of the use of those unitive ideas of the common good. So these have been utilised again by fascist and totalitarian movements of the left and of the right. They've used common good language, unitive common good language. So it's not just that there might be a problem that we can't all agree or we might be sort of overly persuading somebody of one point of view versus another and it's all a bit artificial. There's an even darker history to the use of the idea out there. So we have to use it with gloves on, as it were, with an awareness of that history. There's a, a second criticism which is actually linked to that point, which is almost a Common good too ambitious. One of the reasons why we do fall back on this aggregative notion of the common good, which 
perhaps is better to be called a collective good, is that it's easier. If you think about a family structure where there is a very, very tight pre-existing bond, achieving genuine moments and processes and patterns of common good, even within that structure, is tough. And the further out you get, it gets tougher and tougher. And so that actually talking about any meaningful, serious sense of the common good, when you get to the level of a nation state, it's just impossible. So we might as well do the next best thing, which is settle for some kind of collective good. How serious criticism is that? So I think basically that it's right in the sense that I do think it identifies that this is unbelievably demanding. And I think there's no point in pretending that it isn't unbelievably demanding. But I suppose I see no reason not to live up to the full demand rather than settle in a resigned and slightly kind of depressive way for for, for something <laughs> which is less than that. Because in the end, I suspect that you erode even the possibility of achieving that when you lower the horizon. And I do think that Almost all the big issues that we face now, whether it's climate change, whether it's migration, whether it's thinking about stable economic models, we don't solve any of those by that kind of lesser aggregative version of the common good. And so I just don't see that we have the option of making it easier for ourselves. I think we simply have to accept that it it is that demanding. Mm. So one of the very clear messages I'm getting from our conversation, and I got from the book as well, is that it's completely wrong, really, to see the common good as like some kind of political manifesto. It's much more a challenge. It's a challenge to the story about ourselves. It's a challenge to our standards. It's a challenge to what we think we can realistically achieve. Having said all that, you want it to be more than a challenge. And at one point in the book, you mentioned how talking about the common good touches on issues of housing, education, wages, work, healthcare, access to citizenship, criminal justice, employment, and a healthy climate. That's a hell of a list. Give me an example of what the common good might look like in any of those areas. So probably the example that's closest to my own heart for reasons of my own research is around immigration. So here's an issue where seemingly everybody's unhappy. No one feels, whatever place they are in the political spectrum, nobody feels that we have a system that works as they would want it to work. And I would say that going back to basics on an issue like immigration involves thinking about the basic goods that human beings try to secure for themselves, both those who are already in a settled situation and those who find themselves on the move by choice or because they're forced to be on the move. The point is anthropological again. The reality is that human beings will seek their own good, which is to survive, to flourish, to have access to the basic goods of life, both for themselves and for their families. So it is an inevitability that people will seek to move and they will seek to secure those goods for themselves. So if you have political systems and policy structures that mitigate against the basic warp and weft of how a human being functions, they will always become pathological. So the starting point for a kind of common good revision of policy has to be starting with what we know about the basic characteristics and orientations of human beings, and then thinking about what we then owe to each other by way of mutual duties and responsibilities and obligations in that context. And you grow from there something by way of public policy that allows for the possibility of movement, but also for what forms stable communities. And I think actually it's never been rocket science to think about what something like a common good policy would look like in the context of immigration. The problem is constantly the kind of political forces that make it almost impossible to work with what we know. Mm. You and I are having this conversation on the last day of COP26, 
although our listeners will be listening in a little later than that. I wonder whether the enormous challenge to us presented by climate change is also an opportunity. And the reason I say that is that this is, we're talking, I think, 48 hours or so after a somewhat surprise document was released indicating a desire to cooperate between China and America, which more or less explicitly says, we're going to put aside our very considerable economic, military, political, cultural differences and cooperate on this. Climate change seems to be the typical problem that is absolutely insoluble separately. It demands cooperation. It demands a recognition of common resources and our shared good together. Is it an opportunity? Yeah, of course it is. And and that's the other sort of example. That's kind of where I end up at the end of the book is trying to rethink the idea of what a common life means in an age where our climate and climatic system is so under threat. There is no way that we can solve this simply in divided self-interested groups. And it's a perfect illustration of the fact that our true self-interest, our deepest self-interest is utterly bound up with the self-interest of others. There is no division in that sense. The problem is the layers and structures and perverse incentives, the systems we have manufactured that are in denial of that fact. And now we're trapped within various of those structures and find it incredibly hard to think beyond them because we have created constantly perverse incentives. So I think it's not optional. We are constantly making decisions about common good matters. It's just whether we're comfortable to use that language. I mean, interestingly, I end the book with consideration of somebody like Willie James Jennings, who I know you had doing the Theos lecture, and a challenge to rethink the life of the commons and the way that we have divided the commons up. And we've done that in terms of land and bodies and communities. And we need to completely return to that language and to rethink the very basics of that. And from that, I think, comes a more hopeful future. The idea of the common good is, of course, inextricably linked to the idea of communication. We live in an age of supremely available communication. We communicate with each other virtually all the time, and webs of communication have spread over the world more completely in the last 20 years or so than anybody could have imagined. And yet, at the same time, it appears to have divided us. Certainly, I think you'd be ill-advised to suggest that social media and Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of it is really bringing us together. What's going on there? Why is communication not adding to the common good, but actually ending up divisive? This has so many potential dimensions to it, doesn't it? Because I think it touches on the question of how we are communicating. So much of the communication that we're involved in is very brief, um, it's a form of hyper-connectivity, as Pope Francis has written about, that tends to privilege information over wisdom, talking over listening, and many of the deep skills of concentrated, attentive listening that's the basis for good communication we've lost. We've also lost spaces for silence, which is a very obvious Christian reflection to make as well, and that actually good communication depends not just on speech, but on silence. And that almost the spaces that we have created in which we do communicate and appear to each other are heavily, heavily controlled. Something like Facebook actually is an interesting example. I use other forms of social media, but I chose to stop using Facebook about a year ago for ethical reasons. But the real loss to me is that, in fact, Facebook did connect me to my wider family. So my extended family and cousins, I don't have a way to communicate with them anymore because I don't live where they live. And so there is a loss. So it's not that something like Facebook doesn't have some real communicative value. The point is that the algorithmic structure of that communication frames 
frames my desire to have decent communication and ongoing relationship in such a way that I'm drawn into this other world, which I find dark and problematic. And I can't separate the two. So there are no pure spaces. There are no innocent spaces in a way. And I think there's almost a need to return to some forms of basic face-to-face communication, to relearn some of the skills of attentive and deep listening. And I think those only really happen in localised face-to-face relationships Mm. from which we can grow things out of those. But there's almost a toxicity to that communicative structure now. We began our conversation by talking about how widespread the language of the common good is and indeed how wide it is, how it is used in very different parts of the political spectrum. So I want to close by asking you a question. How would you like to see it used? How would you recommend we talk about the common good in our public conversations as we go on? Well, I can give you an instance of how I attempted to do this on a completely accidental basis. So the week before the Brexit referendum, I was in a pub in Sunderland giving a talk on a Sunday night. So you have to imagine a scene in which I'm at the end of a busy bar with lots of drinkers and there's a big screen above my head playing Britain's Got Talent uh, with the sound on. And I'm having to compete with this because a local church has booked the pub out to do a talk on Pope Francis and his vision of Catholic social teaching and how it could change the world. So I rip up my script and I realise that I basically have to become like a stand-up performer on the theme of Pope Francis in this pub. So I give my talk for 20 minutes and then I think a, a Q&A session's never going to work here. So because we talked about immigration, I said, right, OK, let's take a risk here. There are sections of the community in this pub this evening who, if I'm right, are often not in the same space. So there were members of a a local Iranian church. There were a group of Catholics, including quite a lot of African migrant worker community people, as well as your average kind of white working class Sunderland drinker in the pub. He's got nothing to do with the church. So what I said was, we're going to have a common good conversation. We constantly complain that other people, particularly our politicians in Westminster, are unable to have good quality conversations about the things that matter at the most local level. So we're going to talk together. I said, I'm going to set some rules for this conversation. Bear in mind, alcohol had been consumed in large quantities by this (laughs) point. So perhaps I set the rules a little more strictly than I might do in a more sober setting. But I basically said, I want people to share viscerally the goods that you aspire to in your life the ordinary everyday things that you want for yourself that give you a sense of worth as individuals and as a community. What do you most want? What do you most desire? Why do you desire that? What frustrates that desire? So what are the things that are stopping that being real for your community or you? What are you angry about? So I said, we can talk about things that have disappointed us, frustrated us, that we're angry about. We also can talk about things that we positively aspire to. What you cannot do is blame anybody else. This is not a conversation in which we're going to blame anyone, but we're going to talk together and we're going to listen in a disciplined way. Even if somebody says something you disagree with, you're going to listen to them and you're going to take it seriously and offer them a genuine response. You might have something challenging to say back in return, and that's totally fine, but you do it in a respectful way. And we had an hour or so of the best conversation that I have had in a really long time. People were viscerally passionate, angry, desirous. 
you know, and we talked about the things that really mattered to that community in Sunderland and why. And actually, I wish I had recorded that. I wish I could have played that in Westminster because it was the quality of the conversation, the speaking and the listening and the honesty of the basic things that people thought built a decent life and a decent community. I think we need to have those kind of conversations in many, many different settings. We don't have the spaces in which people can come together that are not already monetized spaces. Um, And I would consider lots of social media spaces also as monetized spaces and already pre-structured spaces. We don't have the hospitable spaces for the speaking and the listening and the vulnerability and the genuine creative exchange of ideas which exist and are frustrated and blocked in their development. I want to see us live that life together, that aspirational life, and then struggle for the outcomes of that. What what Pope Francis calls this kind of social poetry of the streets. We need movements, new movements and new contexts that build that um, as a reality that we simply will not accept less than. That's a lovely story on which to end. The book is called Towards a Politics of Communion, Catholic Social Teaching in Dark Times. Anna, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you for having me. Next week, I'll be speaking to Kyle Harper about his book, Plagues Upon the Earth, Disease and the Course of Human History. First of all, we can never conquer infectious disease. We can control it through a variety of tools, biomedical and social But as we've exploded in number and become more connected and live in cities, the problem of infectious disease, the challenge has actually gotten bigger. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Harvey, Pete Whitehead and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast. <laughs>